here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 12, in honor, of course, of Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr., and in honor of my all-time favorite Dallas Cowboy, Roger Staubach, Captain America. This is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during two and a half hours every day of live go-for-the-throat debate. Today, on this show, I will tell you about the biggest mistake I ever made in my career involving one Larry Bird. I'll tell you why I have now come to believe that LeBron James is a genius of a magician. I'm going to tell you a very deep story about the black woman who pretty much raised me and definitely made me everything that I am today. I'll tell you why Jerry Jones is so bleeping content to do absolutely nothing. And I'm going to answer a literal between the lines question about behind the scenes undisputed. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped, which today doubles as a flashback and a crazy one. Here we go. In honor of March Madness, I'm going to open with my Larry Bird at the Final Four story with a wild and bizarre Dallas Cowboy backdrop that I'll get to. I'm about to tell you why I made the biggest mistake of my career and what it ultimately taught me about how you have to trust yourself in live, unscripted, go-for-the-throat debate. My Larry Bird episode happened in my very first year as a lead sports columnist. This at the Dallas Morning News, a job I started in October of 1978 at age 25. Cowboys were on their way to yet another Super Bowl. This one, you'll probably remember, Cowboy fans, they would lose to Pittsburgh 35-31. to 31. And... This was the era of the highest and mightiest Dallas Cowboys. They had taken America by storm. They were about to be christened America's team. They were led by the holy, some people thought unholy, trinity of Landry, Schramm, and Brandt, as in Gil Brandt. The single most fascinating character I have ever encountered in all my years of covering sports, Gil Brandt, the draft master, you Cowboy fans will know, responsible for so many diamonds in the rough that he found at little hideaway colleges like Langston College, out of which he drafted one Thomas Hollywood Henderson, 18th overall, 1975. What a score that was for Gil Brandt and the Dallas Cowboys. I got to know Thomas very well. 
If not for crack cocaine, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. But he became a Hall of Famer in my book later in his career as he's traveled this country lecturing about the dangers of drug and alcohol abuse. God bless you, Thomas Henderson. But in those days, the Dallas Cowboys had such mystique, such power nationally, that Gil Brandt, the draft master, rode that power into a position of, to me, most powerful man in all of sports. Never seen anything quite like it. Gil Brandt knew everybody, and that's how he scored in the draft in the 70s, really 60s and 70s. And this is how he finally was undone because in the 60s and 70s, nobody invested much in the draft except for the Dallas Cowboys. Gil knew secretaries, he knew ball boys, he knew equipment managers everywhere, such as at Little Langston in rural Oklahoma. And because of that, people fed him information about where the diamonds lied. And in this case, Gil was so far ahead of everybody else just because he had established so many connections in so many places. And he began to run college football because any president who wanted to hire a college football coach went through Gil as the broker. Who should I hire, Gil? Well, hey, do I know a guy for you? And all of a sudden, he would manipulate the maneuvers and movements of, of all the college football coaches. I never seen anything like it. He was the godfather of college football. Gil Brandt, a one-time baby photographer who became a fledgling sort of scout for the expansion cowboys and rose into draft master, rose into running college football, and ultimately, believe it or not, college basketball, Gil Brandt. Now, just so you get this, Gil was also the clearinghouse of information for everybody around the country in the way of reporters from New York to LA. Everybody called Gil because he knew where all the bodies would, were buried and he would share with you any of the dirtiest dirt in exchange for sort of buying insurance from all the reporters who would then protect and glorify the draft master, Gil Brandt. It was brilliant. I fell into that trap occasionally. I'd call Gil, what do you know about so-and-so? But Gil wanted me to know that he knew everything about everybody, including everybody in college basketball. What? Well, Gil had pulled off one diamond in the rough in college basketball because he knew the Utah State coach he had been tipped to not draft, but just to sign a basketball player by the name of Cornell Green. All he did was make five Pro Bowls. And Gil snatched him out of Utah State as, as a kid who'd never played a lick of football. So because of that, Gil did an amazing thing. Gil ran a hospitality suite at every Final Four. Gil Brandt of the Dallas Cowboys, it was the place to be at the Final Four. As you know, Final Four has always been sort of a, a coach's convention. Everybody who wasn't in the Final Four went to the Final Four in those days from Bobby Knight to Dean Smith. And trust me, they all hung out at Gil Brandt's hospitality suite in the headquarters hotel. Never seen anything quite like it. 
And as I went to cover my first ever Final Four, guess where I hung out? At Gilbrandt's Hospitality Suite. And guess what I lucked into? The greatest Final Four matchup in history. Never been anything like it before, never been anything like it since. It was Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird for all the marbles. I was fixated on Magic and that million watt, million dollar smile of his and his ability to dominate games. I had seen more Magic on TV than I'd been able to see Indiana State's Larry Bird. And yet, this was the greatest individual matchup in the history of the Final Four, and to this day, it remains just that. And as you know, that matchup put the madness in March, and it was about to put the NBA back on the national map that it had basically slipped off of. Nobody really filled out brackets in those days. There was no bracket racket. There was no diving into the office pool. The, the early rounds of the tournament just came and went. I'm going to be honest with you. I had only glimpsed Larry Bird once on television. And guess where I was? I was at little old, what was called Municipal Stadium in Miami, as in Miami, Florida, covering spring training because I covered the Rangers who were playing the Baltimore Orioles that day in a spring game. I was writing about Sparky Lyle, who had just come from the Yankees to the Rangers. You might remember him. So I was pretty obsessed with that at that moment. And yet I looked up at the press box TV as I'm writing my column, and I saw that, wait a second, Indiana State's got Arkansas on the ropes? Well, Arkansas had the player, other than Magic, in college basketball. And if you've been watching Winning Time on HBO, you remember the first episode. You remember Sidney Moncrief. You remember that Jerry West, the great Jerry West, I am his biggest fan, made one mistake in his life. He wanted Sidney Moncrief. He wanted him number one overall over Magic Johnson. And to the credit of Dr. Jerry Buss, played by John C. Riley, Dr. Buss said, no. I need the star. I need to put this team back on the map with that smile and that game and that spectacular charisma that only a kid named Magic could bring to Los Angeles, California. And obviously, Dr. Buss was very right. But in that game, Larry Bird outplayed Sidney Moncrief. I look at the numbers today and I say, well, I should have seen that coming. But Larry Bird put a team of nobodies on his back at Little Indiana State. He started out at Indiana under Bobby Knight and couldn't take him. Can't blame him. And Larry Bird beat Sidney Moncrief and Eddie Sutton's Razorbacks in the regional final. And I watched the end of it in disbelief because I knew Eddie Sutton. I loved Eddie Sutton. I'd written about the Razorbacks. And I just thought they were shoo-in to the Final Four, except for that guy, the hick from French Lick named Larry Bird. Yet all I read after the game is that an Indiana State fan had run onto the floor. It was in Cincinnati where the game was played in jubilation. And Larry Bird decked the kid 
an Indiana State fan, a Sycamore fan, and Larry Bird just flat out decked him because he got a little too close running up on Larry Bird. Dropped him, shot to the jaw. What would the internet do with that today? Would Larry Bird be canceled by now? I don't know, but it was a story and it came and it pretty much went as Larry Bird traveled on to the Final Four. So what happened that Saturday at the Final Four? Well, Magic played first against Little Penn. And Magic, with a little help from Gregory Kelser, his running mate at Michigan, destroyed Penn. It was 50-17 to 17 at halftime. I'm mesmerized, man. I am taken by the magic of magic. He went 29-10-10 in that game, a triple-double. The final score is 101-67. to I said, <clears throat> I'm writing that for tomorrow. Of course, it would help if you know newspaper deadlines. you got to write the first game if you can get away with it so that you don't have to wait for the second game to conclude and be up against your deadline. So it gave me a little more time to write and write and write about magic. And I will be the first to admit I barely watched the Larry Bird game against DePaul. Larry Bird went 35, 16, and 9 in that game, made 16 of 19 shots. 16 of 19? I barely watched. And a freshman for DePaul named Mark Aguirre, whom I got to know very well in Dallas, did have the last shot in that game. Little long, bounced high off the rim. Larry Bird wound up with the rebound and the victory, barely. That would have been a game winner. So I'm, I'm not that impressed. They probably should have lost to DePaul, but they didn't. And by the way, the irony of that story is Mark Aguirre used to tell me as a maverick, you can't believe what Larry Bird does to me. He just terrorizes me. He trash talks me like nobody's ever trash talked me. He leans in his, over into my ear and whispers stuff I can't even repeat to you. And he backs it up. I'm going to do this to you. And he does it. This is Mark Aguirre, who's an all-star. who's heart and soul of those Dallas Mavericks that got all the way to Game 7 against Magic at Magic at the Fabulous Forum. That day, Magic took Roy Tarpley, who was virtually unstoppable at seven feet tall out of Michigan, and just squelched him in the fourth quarter. Magic took him and took him out of the game. Mark Aguirre shriveled and shrank in the fourth quarter, and that was that. Magic goes on to yet another NBA Finals. But the point of that evening was, I barely watched Larry Bird, and of course, I adjourned to Gill's Hospitality Suite after I finished writing over in the team headquarters hotel. This is in Salt Lake City, by the way. Love Salt Lake. Beautiful town, my first time there at that point in 79. And I'm hanging and I'm hanging and I'm talking to coaches and I'm doing this and I'm seeing that and I'm enjoying the hors d'oeuvres. Later in the evening, Gilbrandt pulls me aside and he says, listen, I got something for you. I've been talking to these coaches all day long, all the biggest coaches in college basketball, and they all tell me that Larry Bird will not be a star in the NBA because he is, and this was the quote, he's too slow-footed, said Gilbrandt to me. Too slow-footed, okay? And he said, 
A few of the coaches believe he won't even make it in the NBA because he's too, quote-unquote, slow-footed. Okay. Well, again, I barely watch the guy. I'm all magic all the time. And I said, okay. And I go back to my room, and I think about it. I sleep on it, and I get up Sunday. I've got to write for Monday's paper. Finals, obviously, Monday evening. And I wrote it. And I said... You know, I couch it as many coaches here believe that Larry Bird will not make it in the NBA or at least won't be a star in the NBA because he's too, and I use the quote, slow-footed. I trusted Gil Brandt. I, I tr- he, he wasn't going to lie to me. He wasn't going to exaggerate. I believe that those coaches told him just that. Now, is that a product in part of what I might call reverse racism of the, the day? sort of anti-white bias, because by 1980, nobody thought that any white kid was going to become an NBA superstar. Well, you know and I know, one did. And we've never seen anything like that one since in the way of white superstar. But I wrote it, stuck by it, felt pretty good about it on Monday night, when, predictably, Magic and Gregory Kelser had their way with Larry and the Sycamores. It really wasn't close. Magic was the star of the night and the star of the draft. And back I went to Dallas, Texas as a young gun columnist on the rise. And I had already scheduled a speaking appearance because I was trying to make my way in Dallas at a local high school. It's called Richardson Berkner High School. And I show up, this was on Saturday evening, it was sort of a banquet that I was going to speak at the end of, and the organizer says to me, uh, you, you better be ready because they are riled up at you over your Larry Bird column. They are? Really? Okay. I'll be ready. So I spoke, spoke for a while in the Cowboys, spoke for a while in the Dallas Morning News, what we planned to do. And then I opened it up for questions, and I got hit right between the eyes by an angry mob. They barraged me with questions. How dare you? How could you? And it became very clear to me that Larry Bird did indeed represent to these folks the great white hope. Not white hype, white hope. Those folks believed in Larry Bird, and they believed he was going to be not just a star, but a big star in the National Basketball Association. And were they ever right? I eventually learned that you have to see for yourself in my position. You have to trust your own instincts. You you have to learn in my job that coaches constantly get fired because A lot of them don't know as much as I know, and that's the God's truth. That's the one thing I can tell you that I will take to my grave. A lot of them don't know more than I know. In the end, you have to be the judge. You have to listen to the little voice in your head. You have to watch. You have to eye test. And you have to believe in you. Now, I never, ever listen to anybody else when it comes to can he play or not play. 
And I, I will just quick aside, I made one other mistake in my career, maybe not quite as big as Larry Bird, but this happened before that, what was it, 98 draft, Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf. And I, I fell right back into the trap because I was very close to Paul Hackett, then the head coach at USC, and several on his staff, very close to them. They filled my ears all year about Ryan Leaf in the pack, whatever it was at that point. Was it 10 or 12? I don't know. It, it started out pack 8, 10, and 12, whatever it was at that point, that conference. He dominated it that year at Washington State. All I heard was he's a linebacker playing quarterback. He's a gunslinger. We couldn't stop him. I remember he went to USC and just threw a party on the Trojans. And I bought it. I'd watch Peyton, I don't know, three or four times. I know he lost four straight times to Florida. Those are the games I watched. And then I would watch him every year against my Vanderbilt Commodores. I went to Vanderbilt and... The last game, senior year, was at Knoxville, and Peyton really struggled in the game. Final score was 17-10, to 10, Tennessee. It's arch rivalry. I think he threw for 140-odd yards. Tough game. Looked like he could get really happy-footed. It was almost like cartoonish feet. And obviously, I went with Ryan Leaf in that draft, and I was dead wrong because I didn't know that Ryan Leaf could not handle the media even in San Diego. That was too big for Ryan Leaf, who went to school in Pullman, Washington. I've gotten to know Ryan since. He just wasn't psychologically, emotionally ready. But I do believe in his talent. But obviously, I can't argue it against Peyton's talent. So I was wrong again, but not nearly as wrong as Bird. And in this case, trust yourself, trust your instincts. And so... I can give you a litany, but but I've often been right on quarterbacks trusting myself. And even up against my partner, Shannon Sharp, I still believe in Baker Mayfield. He loves Sam Darnold. I said, Baker's better than Sam, and I believe I've been proven right at least about that much. He loved Carson Wentz. I never did, and I believe I've been proven right about that. He loved Tua at Alabama. I did not. I said, he's just too small. He doesn't have near enough arm. And he's just too fragile. And I think I've been proven right about that, although two is on the hottest seat in the NFL because uh, he just got the weapon, Tyreek, to go with quite a weapon, obviously, in Jalen Waddle. He's got the fastest duo in probably the history of professional football. So we'll see if he can rise and shine and be lifted by those two. But the point is, trust yourself. And the conclusion of this story is that as Larry Bird rolled on into the NBA and made me look dumber and dumber, we came upon March 10th of 1986, Larry on his way to Dallas, Texas to play the Mavericks for his one stop a year in Dallas at old Reunion Arena. And by the way, he, he was on his way at that point to his third NBA ring. He'd obviously won Rookie of the Year, and he was on his way to winning his third straight MVP. So I went from wrong to wronger to wrong guest about Larry Bird. And so I decided that morning of that game to go to the shoot-around at Reunion and see if I could catch Larry Bird, who did not do interviews. He was a tough one. 
he didn't care anything about anybody. He needed nobody's interview. Magic, just the opposite. I got to know Magic when he was a rookie and he was just great to me, for me, took me up to his hotel room. He, he's just all time great. Larry, just the opposite. Different strokes, but both of them all time, all time, all time great. So I thought, I'm gonna suck it up and I'm gonna apologize to Larry Bird and see, it's, it's like I owed it to him to see how he might react to that. So I caught him and I said, I'm just gonna take a second of your time. I was really wrong about you. I wrote blah, blah, blah. And he listened patiently for about 34 seconds. And he shrugged and he said, okay. And he walked away. And I deserve that. I deserve that put down. But the Boston writers told me for Larry, that was like a soliloquy. That was like doing a stand-up comic routine to even get an okay out of Larry. I, I do think deep down he appreciated it, but he wasn't going to give me back anything. He wasn't going to say, oh, don't worry about it. He just dismissed me with a shrug and an okay and a walk away. And I deserved it. And the punchline to this story is, I wrote a book about the Cowboys in 1989-90 called God's Coach. And for it, as I researched, I found that Gil Brandt, the draft master, didn't even play high school football. What? That's pretty fraudulent. And over time, I realized that all those diamonds in the rough that Gil found for Tom Landry helped make him. And then as Gil reached and reached and reached through the 80s, as people caught up to him, because they actually spent money on doing draft legwork, Gil got exposed. And he broke Tom Landry through the 80s, which is why Jerry Jones was able to buy the Dallas Cowboys. And he immediately fired Gil Brandt. And Jerry later told me that as far as he was concerned, Gil was pretty much a fraud. Well, he was. Yet he knew everybody in sports. And for a long time, he ran basically college football, and college basketball. And then he was gone. And in the end, I learned, know yourself, watch for yourself, trust yourself. How about a question from the audience, shall we? Hmm. How about two questions from the audience? both involving the same Los Angeles Laker. Hmm. Let's take a question from Joe <clears throat> from Tacoma. Is LeBron in danger of being ranked lower than number nine on your all-time list after this season? Which leads to question number two. This is Eli from Livingston, New Jersey. I wonder if it's that Eli. He lives in New Jersey. I don't know. It could be. Question, LeBron is 37, Aaron Rodgers is 38. Would you rather start an NBA team, as in right now, with the King, or an NFL team, as in right now, with the Packers quarterback? Hmm. Very clever question. First, I'll answer the second question. 
I do not care for Aaron Rodgers, as I've made it very clear on Undisputed. LeBron is a much nicer and better guy. In fact, he's nice to a fault, I always say. Not enough killer instinct in him. No, Jordan. And I would much rather spend time with and around LeBron. But if I'm starting a team right here, right now, give me Aaron bleeping Rodgers. All I know is he's going to at least get me to the playoffs as opposed to LeBron because all Aaron's done is win back-to-back MVPs. I can't argue with that. Now, he's, he's given you the number one seed in Green Bay the last two years, and then he stunk, and he lost, obviously, back-to-back home playoff games. I think he's been pretty much a disaster in the playoffs ever since he won that long-ago, far-away Super Bowl. What was it, 11 years ago? 7-9 and nine in the postseason since then. So, again, I don't love my chances with Aaron in the postseason. I don't trust him. I don't think the Packers brass trusts him in the postseason. But I got to take my chances with Aaron because at least he's going to get me there and he's probably going to get me the number one seed. And then maybe one of these years I'd get lucky because Aaron would get lucky and find himself in the Super Bowl once again. Now back to LeBron. And the first question. No, Joe, I'm not going to demote LeBron on my list. He still ranks ninth. But I will say this. What has happened to his Los Angeles Lakers this season has indelibly stained LeBron's legacy. I remind you, these Lakers were favored to win it all. And I remind you, they're not even going to make the play-in tournament. They're going to finish, I'm, I'm just going to guesstimate here, 18 games under 500. That's impossibly awful for the King. 18 games under 500? And to me, I, I can count, and we don't have time to go back through them one by one, but, but I'll give you a dozen games this year that the King should have closed and failed to close because we know he doesn't have the clutch gene nor the closer gene. Even the other night in New Orleans, they, they have a 23-point lead. They, they're up 20 at halftime. If you're the King, if you're that dude, if you're the goat, as Shannon always says, as opposed to the phony goat, as I say, you close that one in your sleep. And down the stretch, after LeBron had the hottest three-point shooting hand in the second quarter, LeBron missed three threes down the stretch. Missed them pretty badly. Didn't surprise me. I know he turned his ankle. But after he turned his ankle, he made four threes in the second quarter, plus a driving layup. He scored 14 after he turned his ankle. Don't give me turned ankle. He is the all-time ultimate excuse maker. But... But look at what's happening. LeBron's team a year ago was ranked first in defensive efficiency. It, it's now tied for 22nd because LeBron has hovered around 200th in individual defensive win shares this year. He plays no more defense, no more. None. What am I supposed to do with this? 
it, it, and yet, this is just absolutely brilliant. The genius of LeBron is that, as the ancient Greek philosophers always said, you have to know thyself. Well, nobody knows thyself better than LeBron does. And he knew at 37 in year 19, he's no longer capable of carrying a team, of lifting a team. There's no more contagious factor. So at the all-star break, he says, you know what I got to do? I got to do what I got to do. I got to go magician. I got to go sleight of hand. I've got to distract the audience from the glaringly obvious. We're going to miss the playoffs. We're going to finish 18 games under 500 at best. And to do so, aha, voila. I'll go win the scoring title in year 19. And my billions of blind witnesses, all my followers, my idolaters, my protectors, my defenders, they'll be able to crow and gloat about, he won the scoring title in year 19. Nobody's ever done that. Only a second scoring title to MJ's 10. But who's counting? But in year 19, it was brilliantly beautiful. But to do so, LeBron had to sacrifice everything, including winning. Just two years ago, he led the league in assists with 10.2 a game since the All-Star break. His team is 4-13 and as I'm taping this. Could be worse by now. 4-13 and because his assists have plummeted to 5.6 a game. So 10.2 just two years ago since the All-Star break in 17 games. 5.6, he's not orchestrating, he's not, he's not the maestro anymore that he used to be because he's leading the league in shots attempted and he's leading the league in scoring. Brilliant, way to go. And, and now all I hear is scoring title and it's distracted most people from that indelible stain on his legacy. And I'm sorry, Braun, but missing the playoffs is going to outweigh scoring title. So give me Aaron Rodgers, Aaron bleeping Rodgers. This is a tough one for me but I'm going to plunge. I'm going to tell you about the woman who pretty much raised me, a black woman named Katie Bell Henderson. Yet, I'm first going to tell you about what's happened to me this week on Undisputed yet again. On Monday, because I pushed to do it, Shannon and I plunged into Will Smith versus Chris Rock. It's been the story in the country and loosely tied to sports because obviously Will Smith won the Academy Award for playing Richard Williams, obviously the father of Venus and Serena. 
we're completely unscripted on Undisputed. It is live. Shannon can be unpredictable. I, I never quite know where he's going to go. And I love that about him. And on Monday's show, he surprised me. He plunged straight into a race-based point of view on Will versus Chris. I'm great with that. I, I appreciate that. I honor that. But it put me in a little bit of a precarious position because I can't go in there. I don't belong in there. I, I, I don't know enough to go in there. How many times have I said on the air, I'm obviously white. I, I can't begin to feel what you're feeling. I can't even pretend that I've ever walked for one minute in your shoes or your sneakers because I haven't and, and I won't even try to go in there. On the other hand, when it comes to race topics, if you've watched, you know I'm fearless. I'm very comfortable going along for the ride because I do think I have some appreciation and some perspective that I can add from my side of the table as a white guy who's just offering his two cents. But I've been doing this for a long time and sometimes my two cents can be fairly valuable within the confines of a race topic in which I completely defer to Shannon or if we have Chris Broussard on or back in my days with Stephen A. Been doing these for at least a dozen years on live national TV. And I don't shy away. Not always completely comfortable, but I don't shy away. I, I often disqualify by saying, hey, I am just a white guy over here, but I know my first year on Undisputed, uh, black executive at FS1, Neil Scarborough, pulled me aside after a couple shows. He said, look, I've been watching you for a long time. You, you, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to disqualify yourself. You're okay. You, you can go. You can do this. Just go in there. We, we can see you're white. You don't have to say. And I said, Neil, there are times when I'm tiptoeing on such thin ice that I need to remind everybody, I know my place here, but I'm going to try. And maybe I can help bring a little different perspective and help maybe one or two viewers better understand the racial predicament we all find ourselves in. That brings me to the single greatest thing anybody ever said about me, ever in my career, better than any award I've ever won. It came in my days on first take. We had the Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas on the great Detroit Piston. He volunteered on live TV to me. He said, you'd be welcome in any barbershop in any neighborhood in this country. Thank you. I'm not sure that's true. But if it is, 
it's because of the way I was raised. And to Isaiah's point, yeah. I, I, as soon as I even th let the thought go in my mind, I just light up to that. I, I'd go in any barbershop. I might be that guy in the barbershop who has that opinion that just rankles everybody and sets everybody off. But you'd like to think, as we always say in our live debate format, no punches pulled, but none thrown. Everybody finally agrees to disagree and leaves the barbershop entertained by the sports debate of the day. I thrive on that. I don't care what color you are. I'd be right in the middle of it. And if you're black, I'm there. And in part, it's because of Katie Bell. So I'm going to tell my Katie Bell story. I wrote about it in a piece we called Here I Am that we ran on all of our platforms here at FS1 a few years back now. But I only wrote a couple of paragraphs about Katie Bell, and I couldn't quite do it justice the way I'm going to try to do it justice right now on this platform in a longer form with a little more depth. And I'll disqualify myself again. You, you can scoff at what I'm about to say. You, you can undercut it. You can disqualify you, wh Whatever you want to do, God bless you. You can say I'm over-dramatizing. You can say I have no idea what I'm talking about, and you could be right. When it comes to race, I could well be wrong. But in this case, I don't care. I'm going to tell you what's in my heart. And I'm going to tell you why this is the essence of who I am in life and on television. Now for the tricky part. Katie Bell Henderson worked for my grandmother in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. But my grandmother was not rich. Katie Bell was not a servant. She wasn't the help. This was not plantation mentality. You're just going to have to trust me on this. My grandmother traveled in her work, and she needed somebody to run the household. And Katie Bell had been with her for a long time, and, and Katie Bell took over the household. My, my immediate family, my extended family, I, I never got any racist vibes from anybody. Everybody loved Katie Bell, but they treated her like an equal. They, they treated her like one of the family. You're just going to have to trust me on this. She was an authority figure. Nobody in my, my family, my cousins, n nobody except for one quick story I'll tell in a second. I, I didn't hear the N-word. I heard it at school occasionally on the playground when I was a little kid, but not from my parents or my grandparents. I, I just didn't hear it. Katie Bell was just Katie Bell to me. So I, I never was taught to look down on her. I only looked up. Her parents came from Birmingham, Alabama. But Katie Bell was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. And trust me, she was as tough as she was sweet. She had the biggest 
quickest smile I've ever seen. And she had the biggest, quickest laugh I've ever heard. But when it came to discipline, Katie Bell would put her hands on me. She was a stoutly built woman and she was strong and, and she would punish me when I was wrong. She taught me the word, I think when I was like five or six years old, she, she called me a hypocrite because of the way I was treating my brother, I think it was. But the point was, my household was a wreck because my father and my mother were alcoholic wrecks. My mother admitted to me later in life, she just didn't want kids and she had three. And we got put with different relatives at different times, but I always wound up sometimes often alone at my grandmother's with Katie Bell because I loved Katie Bell and I think she loved me more than any of the grandchildren. I just got that sense from her, it could be wrong. But I spent an inordinate amount of time with Katie Bell. Everything I learned about right and wrong came from Katie Bell. Katie Bell was far more of a mother to me than my mother was, far more. I trusted her. I believed in her and she treated me like her son. I watched TV endlessly with her, her favorite soap opera, Edge of Night, her favorite sort of cowboy soap opera at night was called Gunsmoke, Google it, check it out, but it was Dodge City. It was, it was actually a soap opera in the old west and she loved those shows and I loved watching her love those shows. And in the summers, she would have her granddaughter down to stay with her from Chicago named Audrey. And I can't tell you how many hours I spent with Audrey. She was exactly my age at ages six, seven, eight in my grandmother's backyard, just making up stupid games just to pass the time. And I learned a lot about Chicago. And obviously I learned a little about black people never really thought about it. it. It wasn't like a conscious effort, but just by association, you wanna talk about a blessing for me? You, you wanna talk about, thank you, God? I mean, to me, God sent me Katie Bell, and she was a God-fearing woman who sometimes took me on Sunday to her church, an AME church in Oklahoma City, that was obviously all black. So I got to experience what it felt like to be the only white face in a black congregation. And I was just a little kid and they treated me like a little prince. And yet <laughs> compared to the church I went to, a Methodist church named Epworth Methodist Church near my grandmother's house, I wanted to go to Katie Bell's church. Man, they got into it. It was fun. It was joyful. It was a lot of shouting from the congregation. It was singing with all your heart and might. And I actually asked my mom, could I go? No, you can't go there every Sunday. You, you can't, you just can't do it. I, I just love being around Katie Bell because I loved her spirit. I loved her energy. 
And I loved her ability just to laugh at life. As bad as it could get, she, she could laugh because, because she came from a long line of people who had no choice but to laugh because of the pain and suffering they had endured. And my wife, Ernestine, sometimes says to me, you know, it's funny. She said, I always get the sense you're actually more comfortable around black people than you are white people. Not that I don't love, I love everybody. I, I just do. I just love being around people if we're talking sports, obviously. And yet, Ernestine sees me if we're out in public. Black people come up. God, we, we love Undisputed. You know, we, we don't like what you say about LeBron occasionally. Some do, some don't. But, but it's always good-natured, high-spirited, good-spirited. And Ernestine always says, you just light up with, with the... I do. I, I do. I just... My partners on TV, black partners. Another Google for you. The late, great Ralph Wiley, back in my days on Jim Rome show, my debate partner, no longer with us. What a mind he had. Michael Wilbon, my days on Prime Monday ahead of Monday Night Football and ESPN. Of course, the man who's like a brother to me, Stephen A. Smith, Shannon Now, Lil Wayne, who's not like a brother, he is my brother, and Nellie. I talk to Nellie often about life things, about Will Smith versus Chris Rock. Deep conversations, deep thinker is Nellie, so is Wayne. And yet, I, I gravitate there. I thrive on that. And I just owe so much of that to my upbringing that, that was absolutely invaluable gift from God. And I'll leave you with this, and you can take or leave this story, but a couple of years back, Ernestine had connected with a, a psychic, a black man in New York named Joseph, a mystic, a shaman, and Ernestine said, he is just extraordinary, and you should talk to him because he will enlighten you about you. And, and you'll be shocked at what he'll be able to know about you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Skeptical, not buying it. And she just hounded me until I finally said, okay, I'll try it. But I don't believe in it. She said, well, just try it. If you don't like it, hang out. So I called Joseph. She said, he's God-based, so he's going to pray with you to start the conversation, and then you'll go. You can ask him questions. And I had no expectations. We prayed for a minute. And then as we started, I was to ask him some questions. All of a sudden, he interrupts. He says, wait a second, somebody wants to join. I said, what do you mean somebody wants to join? Somebody from the other side wants to join. I said, I'm thinking to myself, this is the biggest bunch of baloney. I said, okay. And, and then my first thought was, 
could this be my mom? Please, please don't be my mom. He says, it's a black woman. I'm like, a black woman? It's a black woman. And I said, Katie Bell? I haven't seen Katie Bell since I was 20 years old. No longer obviously with us. He says, it's Katie Bell. And she wants you to know, <laughs> excuse me, how proud she is of you. True story. And I just, I just broke down. And Katie Bell, if you're listening, and I do believe you are, please know how thankful I am for you. And how much I love you. And thank you for allowing me to tell you my Katie Bell story. Let's get back to your questions. Let's take one from Zach from Buffalo. See, cowboy fans are everywhere. Zach asks, why are the Cowboys sitting on their hands and doing nothing to strengthen the team? That is a great question. I'm assuming from a cowboy fan in Buffalo, Zach. That's a mind blowing question, Zach. That's a soul-crushing question, Zach, that I do have an answer for. It's simply because my Cowboys, I'm a lifelong diehard, my Cowboys currently get to play in the NFC and especially in the NFC East. That's why Jerry Jones feels zero urgency, zero pressure, zero heat to fire himself as he approaches 80 years of age and hire a real GM. These are the quarterbacks that Jerry Jones is quote unquote scared of in the NFC East as we speak. These are the ones who stand between Jerry Jones and yet another home playoff game by winning the East. Carson Wentz, as I call him, W-I-N-C-E, now in Washington. Wentz. I wince every time I watch him drop back. Daniel Jones. You Giants fans know and love him, or maybe not so much. And a young man I do really like in Jalen Hurts. But trust me, Jerry Jones is not afraid of Jalen Hurts or the Philadelphia Eagles. I still think the Eagles are the biggest threat to my Cowboys next year. I'm I'm starting to lean toward picking the Eagles to win the East next year. Maybe just to turn up some heat on Jerry. But Jerry, as we speak, is sitting on an asbestos throne. He's got it made. He's living large as he approaches 80 years of age. He owns the most valuable team in the world. He owns the number one TV draw certainly in the United States of America, in the National Football League. 
And he knows that every time he opens his doors at Jerry World, that about 100,000 people are going to cram in there to watch his Dallas Cowboys win the NFC East. So why would Jerry panic? What desperation? There's none. Jerry made one huge mistake that he hasn't had to pay for. He gave Dak Prescott way too much money, $75 million in the first year because he got backed into a corner and he didn't have the guts to get out of that corner by saying no to Dak Prescott. I kept saying, well, just sign Brady. Brady's out there. Maybe Brady would have laughed at Jerry Jones. But I'll take Brady over Dak for two years if you got to let Dak go. Go draft a quarterback. or You, you can't dramatically overpay a fourth-round pick and hoping to play like the fourth overall pick. He's just not. He's pretty good. But you saw what happened down the stretch last 11 games. My Cowboys went 6-5, and five and Dak stunk and stunk and stunk again and stunk in a home playoff game against the 49ers. Ugh. So my Cowboys are cap-strapped because they're Dak-strapped. And that they can justify nickel and diming in free agency and waiting for the bargain basement to open up. Jerry can justify going El Paso, as he said the other day, on Randy Gregory, as in, I pass. As in, he says he told Randy and his agent, you won't include that clause. It's, it's a clause that protects guaranteed money. It's a clause Jerry has never enforced one time in every other Dallas contract that's had it in, and, and all of them do except for Dax. Never enforced at one time, but he insisted on having it in Randy Gregory's contract. And that was the reason, the money was equal, that Randy Gregory, difference maker, went to Denver. He's a Denver Bronco because Jerry said, no, I'm going to stand by what I believe. I believe in this clause and this con. Baloney you do. You just don't have any pressure. There's no desperation. There's no need to compete. What if Jerry, what, what if you competed in the AFC West where Randy Gregory is now a Bronco? What if you had to compete against Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Justin Herbert, Derek Carr? What if? Would that relight your fire? You better believe it would. Jerry, what, what are you doing? D difference makers. What, what, Jerry, how did you win your Super Bowls? You plunged. You went out and got Charles Haley, difference maker. 1992, I was there. Jerry, you won your third Super Bowl because you plunged and you quote-unquote overpaid for a difference maker. Neon Dion Sanders. I was there. And you won it all in 1995, sort of in spite of yourselves because you just had way more talent than anybody else did. Certainly the Steelers who opposed you in the Super Bowl. You got a plunge, Jerry. So I, I sit on Undisputed every day. I beat the table. Jerry, wake up. You got to do something. You know what Jerry's answer is? I don't need to do anything. I'm going to have a home playoff game next year. And he probably will. And they'll certainly lose it. Mm. 
Let's try another of your questions. I like this one from Nico from the Crenshaw District here in Los Angeles. What do you write down on all your pages of notes for either of your shows? Weird, good question. So Nico, my process is what I call flash memory. I need to write down all my thoughts on a topic and then I need to write down all the ammo I'm going to need to win that debate. This is on Undisputed, obviously. And I memorize it by writing it in case I need it. So hopefully I've written down every conceivable move I'm going to have to make against Shannon in a debate. I've scripted it out so that it'll be emblazoned in my flash memory if I need to reach for it. I'll glance down occasionally at my notes, but, but mostly it's just bam, 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 bam. If he goes here, I'm going to go there to Shay. But if he goes there, checkmate, I got him with that because I'm gonna go there. It's flash memory, and it gets crazy out there on live TV because it's going way faster than it probably plays to you at home. But because I've written it, I can reach for it and get it without having to find it in my notes. Because I wrote down the figures. LeBron is averaging 5.6 assists as the team has gone 4-13 and 13 since the All-Star break. That just came out of my head because I just wrote it down before we did this. And I'll remember maybe half of it by tomorrow. And in 48 to 72 hours, I'll remember maybe a fourth of it. And by next week, I won't remember much of it at all. It's called flash memory. Now, for this podcast, it's a little different because I don't use a teleprompter. And for, for storytelling and soliloquizing, I need to, to follow the thread a little better so I stay on track. So I'm going to have to glance down a little bit more because I don't love teleprompters and it makes me read. You rely too much. But mostly here, I've, I've written it all down and it's mostly in my memory. And again, some of it will fade from memory. And once we've recorded by tomorrow, all this will, like my cowboys, go right in the trash. And I'll forget about it. So just for posterity's sake, I'll, I'll show you. I'll just hold up some. Let's do, how about some Katie Bell here? Here's, here's a Katie Bell. I'll give you this. This is the third page of Katie Bell, if you can see that. And here's the point. I never worry about Shannon on Undisputed cheating off me because nobody can read this except me. These are my hieroglyphics that have evolved over taking millions of notes over thousands of days as a columnist slash reporter writing for newspapers and magazines. And let's try another one. Let's try 
Oh, here's the third page of Larry Bird. I don't know. I, I probably can't even read it right now, but it helped me to scribble it because my hieroglyphics were emblazoned in my brain. And this all is about to go right in the trash because it helped me get through episode 12 of the Skip Bayless Show, which is now concluded. I want to thank you for listening and or watching. Big thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro staff for making this show go. Thank you to Tyler Korn for propping me up, producing. Remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, the Skip Bayless Show, every week.